Hey folks, I'm Dr. C and welcome to my office hours. So uh, today we are continuing our series on critical race theory. We're doing part two, which is a understanding of the sort of foundational ideas and core concepts behind the theory. And uh, you know, as with episode one, we've got Barry in here talking uh, about it as well. So say hi to the folks, Barry, yes. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, folks. And I just want to uh, double back to something because uh, last time uh, we spoke about this, uh, I pointed out, you know, who we are in terms of our sort of ethnic demographic. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm always kind of confused as to whether or not I need to keep doing that because I don't know how people are consuming this media. Right. right? When, when are people dropping in and when, yeah. Right. You know, I, I don't know. Do people know that, like, uh, I'm Chicano and you're white? Like, does that... Or, or do they have that pre-established knowledge? Because otherwise, if they've been listening from the beginning, it's like, you know, Dr. C is really interested in pointing out that Barry's white. And I don't know if that's yeah. healthy. Like, <laughs> No, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But uh, it's not bad yeah. to acknowledge it and, and make sure everyone's on board with it. So it's all good. I suppose we could, you know, take the time to study the best practices for, you know, what people do in these sorts of situations. But um, it is a part of our understanding when we got into this that we would only take this so seriously. So with that in mind, yeah. uh, <laughs> let's get into it. We can it. only do things so good. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's part of the branding of the show. We have firm standards here uh, at Thornburg Media, which means that we are just below them. Um, as a matter of principle. So, yeah. That's right. That's right. Anyway, so uh, let's talk about Get close the, to doing the right thing. That's how we've branded this show. It's true. <laughs> Bare sufficiency. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, yeah, so let's talk about, you know, this. Um, just to recap a little bit, critical race theory is a theory that ha was uh, developed, you know, in the uh, 70s into the early to mid 80s um, as a out branch of critical legal studies, primarily concerned with how our society, first as a legal perspective, how our society reproduces the issue of race as a social construct, and then the material consequences that come along with that, right? Those are sort of the, yep. the two foundational components of the theory itself. How is race constructed? And what are the material consequences? of that social construction. So right. um, on on that note, and we I'd only bring this up because it, it sort of ties in a little bit, but we, uh, we've talked about this actually off camera before, Barry. Uh, so a lot of things are social constructs, right? Uh, yeah. As I ask my students, what do the Kardashians in the US Constitution have in common? They're social constructs. The power only comes from those who consent to agree that they have power, right? Yeah. Uh, and that tells you a lot about, you know, how society can operate and what sort of holds us together. But did you see a recent news? It also says a lot about the integrity of our society, that the Kardashians have power, but whatever. You know. <laughs> yes. No, there's absolutely that. Um, <laughs> but did you happen to see the recent news about a, um, a sovereign citizen who uh, invaded a woman's home and, like, took it over in Seattle? Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. So I, okay. I love sovereign citizen stories. Yeah. So if you're not familiar, sovereign citizens are folks who have this sort of philosophical perspective that they have the right to acknowledge what are and are not legitimate laws and what does and does not apply to them, usually based in some uh, interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, something along those lines. And common examples of this would be like um, if you're familiar with the the. Uh, like Clive and Bundy and his family out west with the people who, you know, insist on letting their cattle uh, graze on 
public lands that are not theirs, right? And they don't want to pay permits, that kind of thing. And right. so they just sort of take liberties and that sort of stuff. That's a, that's a pretty common one. Yeah, uh, there's, there's like a, an overlap or a Venn diagram where uh, sovereign citizens and uh, libertarians kind of exist together. Mm-hmm. Not not all libertarians consider themselves sovereign citizens. Not all sovereign citizens consider themselves libertarians. But there's a healthy amount of libertarians and sovereign citizens that kind of just yeah. uh, inhabit the same sphere. And they also tend to run in like anti-government circles and that kind and of conspiracy thing. Thir- and conspiracy theories. And conspiracy theories. And of course, because as with all things, Nazis are mixed in somewhere along the way. Yeah. Um, so there was a recent story that came out, and I only got to read a little bit of it. Uh, the there was a man who invaded a woman's home first he sent her letters to let him uh, let her know that he had a right to her land <laughs> awesome right and the home <laughs> on it. and apparently it was on like this sort of like stylistic parchment paper kind of thing right yeah and so um he you know sent her these letters and she was like this is a scam or whatever just ignored it as a reasonable person would um and then one day he broke into her house and changed the locks and like laid claim to her home while she was out and she had to like call the SWAT uh team to come and you know evict the guy forcibly and that kind of thing um but he was <laughs> I, wish I could call on a SWAT team to accomplish some of the things I wanted to do well what's interesting about this is you usually... like to call the SWAT team to take attendance in my class yes <laughs> we are heading towards a future where like SWAT operate as truancy officers like I have yeah, no doubt about yeah that, I mean that that says more about our dystopian future or present than anything but whatever <laughs> exactly right <laughs> so um, what's worth noting is that both individuals in the story are black uh, mm. the woman uh, was black and the man was black and uh, why that's relevant is because the man apparently subscribed to a variation of a sovereign citizen philosophy that said that because uh, you know enslaved Africans were brought to the United States against their will the laws of the United States do not apply to them hmm. and so that is with what right he claimed this person's land uh, and her home so it's just all kinds of wild and the reason I bring wow. this up yeah it, it's it's nuts and not one not a story I've heard before right in the sovereign citizen yeah. genre this is not what I'm familiar with so I have to do some more reading on it but the reason I bring this up is because we have to bear in mind that we can't just dismiss this idea of a social uh, construction as being flimsy right mm. yeah it's rooted in thought and perspective and of course those are subject to change and can be manipulated but and it can be inherently false Absolutely. It can be inherently false or, or built on, uh, you know, misunderstandings or bad knowledge or even just, you know, deceptive pretense, those sort of things. That doesn't mean there aren't material consequences, because while this guy mm. bought into a particular uh, social construction that the rest of us do not believe in, his actions still had a material consequence, right, on this woman's life. Um, right. So anyway, going back to the, the core components of critical race theory, um, I want to cover three things in particular. The first is the idea of whiteness with a capital W. Um, mm-hmm. The second is we'll talk about you know the idea of privilege, uh, and I know people get real tired of hearing about you know privilege because it's a very overused word, but for lack of a better term, we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit. Um, and then the third thing I want to talk about is this matter of intersectionality because it really gets into. Uh, how we're supposed to apply this, how we're supposed to conceptualize matters of race. And also it rebuts against um, one of the main points of uh, criticisms of uh, critical race theory, and that is that critical race theory argues for strict uh, categories of oppressed and oppressor. And it's actually not that simple. Um, So 
starting off with yeah. the starting off with the idea of whiteness. Um, whiteness is well. First, <laughs> first let me don't laugh at Sorry. me. This is serious. Hesitant laughter. <laughs> no. First thing we need to understand is that um, our racial identities are almost anachronistic. Um, they exist mm -hmm. in a very sort of limited time and space. Yeah. Um, if you identify as a white person or if you identify as a black person or uh, a Latino or Asian or anything like that, you have to understand that if you take your identity out of this environment and you were to, if we could send you back in time three, four hundred years, that racial identity means something entirely different, right? Mm -hmm. The consequences of that racial identity are very different. It may not even exist at all depending on where we were to send you, right? So we have to understand mm -hmm. that this is mm -hmm. bound by context. Um, and that I like the way that- right. So you're saying, in other words, like the social construct, depending on who socially is agreeing upon that construct, it, that changes as culture changes, as, yeah, as events mm -hmm. take shape and, and affect that culture and so on. Absolutely, absolutely. To, you know, take uh, a white person and drop them in the middle of uh, Renaissance era, you know, Italy or whatever to identify as white is nothing. It, it doesn't mean anything, right? Because yeah, yeah. for most of our history, we have identified based off of ethnic identity or nationality. Um, right. But the idea of, a, of racial categorization is, is relatively new. It's only been in the last 500 years or so. So, and even then in the early stages, it took a long time to really sort of develop into what we understand now. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, um, I like the way that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates puts it in his book, Between the World and Me. Uh, when he refers to white folks as people who believe they are white. Yeah. Because uh, while blackness in the United States was constructed out of a absence, right, of a lack of uh, connection and culture and identity because of the horrors and trauma of the transatlantic slave trade, the people that died along the Middle Passage, um, the idea of having your uh, ancestry and all knowledge associated with that just absolutely ripped away, which, as a side note, um, uh, just as a sort of a, an interesting uh, underscore to that, uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi in his book, Stamped from the Beginning, um, discusses how one of the pieces of information that was lost was early vaccination, uh, about how there mm -hmm. were uh, mm -hmm. tribes mm -hmm. in Africa who uh, would take uh, like a thorn and then dip it in the, um, in the wound of someone who had like a, a pox, like a smallpox or something, and then right, right, scratch right. it, scratch somebody else with it, which was like a form of inoculation, a very weakened form of the virus so they could develop um, an, an immunity. And think about how much other information that the world lost through that genocide, right? Right. So that being said, blackness was, as a racial identity, was constructed out of a you know, collective sense of identity, the shared trauma, and, you know, this gradual network and intermingling of cultures that developed over time. So that's why we don't, that's why Coates would not say, like, people who believe they are black. No, blackness as a, as a living, breathing thing, right? But when it comes to whiteness, it's a little bit different because whiteness is a, was meant to sort of consume all things together that could still exist, right? So mm -hmm. whereas uh, the descendants of the formerly enslaved Africans did not necessarily have, or did not were not able to maintain their cultural identities, uh, so it created mm -hmm. something new, mm -hmm. 
people that are white can still have their ethnic identities. Those identities can still exist, right? You can mm -hmm. be Irish, you can be Dutch, you can be English, um, you can be French or Spanish or any of those things. Those identities, right. we can still you can still lay claim and connection to them because they're still like a paper trail in many instances. Most folks don't, if, especially in the United States, or at least a lot of people don't because you have an American identity, sure. But that being said, it's important to remember that whiteness was intentionally constructed to have a uh, to be a, for, a sort of a form of division between white folks and everybody else right who got right, to count right, right. that kind of thing yeah. um, and in that way it became a sense of the norm it became the center and the invisible component of almost every element of our lives um, right well it, it's a quality that was constructed to differentiate and to to justify the power that was unevenly distributed, right? And mm -hmm. the rights that were uneven, unevenly distributed, mm -hmm. um, and the uh, you know uh, the privileges that were unevenly distributed as well, right? Like, mm -hmm. it, I I'm not I'm not getting the privileges that I have because I'm French in the United States, right? I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm getting the privileges that I have because of the, the whiteness that I identify with. Right. And, and the more closely I can identify with that whiteness, then, and the more I can get society to believe and buy into this idea of whiteness, the more of those privileges I get to partake in or have access to or, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And on that note of sort of aligning oneself with the with whiteness, um, there's a foundational article that was written by a couple of communication scholars, um, Nakayama and Krizik. I want to say it's called The Rhetoric of Whiteness, and I believe it was published in like 1995. Um, it's a very easy to find article. I think there might even be some like versions of it floating around online that you can mm -hmm. access on PDF or something because it's so old. Um, but I guess it's almost almost 30 years old at this point. Um, mm. So the article argues that whiteness is invisible by virtue of its, the fact that it's everywhere. And for example, um, consider for a second what it means to be professional, what it means to dress in a professional mm -hmm. manner, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That is a very particular image um, that is wearing, you know, for men like a suit, uh, for women, you know, a, uh, a dress or like a, you know, uh, some sort of business attire along those lines usually involves some sort of like jacket or blazer or for men like a button-up shirt or for women a nice blouse something along those lines those are images that were that are rooted in what it means to be professional from a very western from a very european perspective yeah a white upper class yeah sort of tradition Ab right? absolutely that's been, that's been perpetuated over time yeah absolutely and there are tons of examples uh where it's unusual to be not white um one of my favorite examples is that like i love marvel and the mcu um it's awful white like, like super white uh mm -hmm. they have produced something to the effect of 20 some odd movies at this point right and yeah. there has been the only ones that have not had leads that were uh, white men were Captain Marvel, Black Panther, and most recently Shang-Chi, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I believe it's – oh, I'm sorry, and Black Widow. Uh, it, I'm, I forget a Black Widow from time to time. Um, so, yeah, so that's four. Four out of nearly five times as many films, 
right? Yeah. Uh, that have been starring. So it's unusual. And this is actually something that, you know, I've listened to some like uh, podcasts from people who are involved in Hollywood or work, you know, in TV or film industries. And they say things like, you know, there are conversations behind closed doors about like, well, we already have a female led uh, sitcom. That's enough for now. We don't need a second one on the air. Right, 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 right. right. Those kind of things. So, yeah. Um, the fact that we have to talk about it in a like, in that sort of context that like mm -hmm. well now we have this unusual person being a lead we've met our quota of some sort mm -hmm. we can move on to do something else or we can go back to doing normal things right yeah. when what we really mean is you know white male leads or, or things like that right, right right yeah the mcu has three white dudes named chris that were leads um <laughs> right no me wrong i love me some chris evans um but I'm not holding him personally accountable. But yeah, there's Chris Evans, Chris Pine, Chris, uh, I'm sorry, Chris Pratt and uh, Chris Hemsworth. I won't be surprised if there's a Chris Pine uh, feature film at some point. Um, <laughs> you get the tetrad of Chris's. Um, there you go. But yeah, so, but it goes back to this idea of whiteness as central. Uh, white sounding names, right, are much more likely to be hired uh, than names that sound well, and, and different. It, in, in that respect as well, um, it's... Over time, it gets even more specific, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's white upper class. Yes, that that becomes um, the the ideal and the goal mm -hmm. of of uh, white society, right? And so it's not it, again. It's it's that that issue of degrees that your privilege is is giving you into degrees. Or, or is ba your your amount of privilege is based on how closely you can align to white upper class interests, oh, yeah. white upper class ideals, mm -hmm. white upper class image, right? And um, and historically, those who have deviated from that, um, whether they identify as white or not, are are removed from the privileges that that white upper class mm -hmm. get to enjoy, right? Yeah. And so. That's that's where a lot of these gripes that we hear um, that we've heard for a long time, but um, a, a lot of popular arguments that I hear from um, <clears throat> my fellow white people are like, look, I've suffered and I don't have all the privileges that other other people have like and I'm white. So like, what do you mean? Like I have white privilege or whatever. And it's like, well, look, there everyone everyone struggles for one yes. uh, but but this ideal is also hinged often uh, upon our our ability to adhere to white upper class oh yeah privilege, right yeah. and or, or what white upper class identity and um and and so no white white lower class people have have suffered in numerous ways and in in particularly egregious ways right mm. uh, the the history of west virginia is is one that's uh, full of oh, yeah. uh, stories of white lower class uh, poverty, and I mean, what what's what what's the the spectacle of the white Appalachian hillbillies, right? And and how much do we make fun of or stereotype um, people from communities like that, right? Mm -hmm. it, the, there is a, an argument to be made that white lower class people have had a, a bad go of it, right? Yeah. But that that racial that racialized aspect to this has continued to divide lower class peoples from from uniting with each other because of uh, this racial construct. Absolutely. And and um, I want to put a pin in that for just a second, because that gets more into the discussion of privilege. Um, 
and that there's a lot there to unpack. And right before we go on to that, I just want to um, reiterate this point a little bit. When we talk about whiteness as a identity, as a social construct, a part of that is not having to think twice about it. So if you've never mm-hmm. thought about your race, there's a decent mm-hmm. chance that it's because you were brought up white, right? Totally. It, it's not totally. something that ever has to be on your radar. Um, whereas, you know, I remember the first time that I became aware of race as a thing was when I was like four or five years old and a friend of mine, one of my friends refused to play with my other two friends because they were black and he was white. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, and years later that made me wonder like, well, what did he think of me? Because I was Mexican. Um, mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, he had a Mexican stepfather, so he was fine with Mexicans as it were. But, this idea of it's so normal when we talk about naming when we talk about professional attire and dress when we talk about respectable jobs right when Mm -hmm. we talk about what counts as uh normal or not at all unusual and so to live in those spaces means you don't have to think about it and of course to your point when we say whiteness we're really referring to a white middle to middle upper class um, sort of paradigm here, which explicitly leaves out the poor for reasons we'll talk about in just a minute, connecting back to what you were saying about like, you know, West Virginia and the Appalachians and, and that sort of um, in, environment. Um, but at the end of the day, I also want to double down on this idea that like identifying with that system of power, recognizing it is fine. I, I, I really get bothered when people talk about this idea of like white guilt Right. Mm-hmm. And people feeling guilty about being born white. No one should feel guilty about being born anything. Right. It is what it mm-hmm. is. Um, right. It's not like you. I'm not aware that there was any sort of like pre-screener to being born. It was like, well, I want this and this and this, you know, <laughs> checking off boxes or anything like that. Um, so no, it, there is some yeah. interesting theological uh, weirdness that goes on with that, that exact thing. So, but what, yeah. that's, that's a, that we should have a separate <laughs> show about that. No, yeah, we should. That's yeah. A, that's its own show. Yeah. really. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, when we talk about, you know, whiteness, if you are a white individual, I, I want you to understand, at least from a critical race perspective, we're talking about a concept that has been used to regulate society. We're not talking mm-hmm. about specific people, right? Unless we're specifically talking about specific people. But generally speaking, when we talk about yeah. like people, yeah. people have names, we'll, we'll call them out by name yes. if we need to. Yes, yeah. yes. Rest <laughs> assured, uh, names will be uh, taken. All right, folks, actually, uh, we kind of have to cut it right here. So this conversation went a bit longer than Barry and I expected. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a good conversation. So yeah, Yeah, it was great. So this is part one of part two, um, because we're professionals and this is a thing that is makes sense. Uh, And we'll pick up with the second half of this conversation about, you know, things like intersectionality and privilege and uh, and whiteness and whatnot next week. Thank you, dear listener, for putting up with our foolishness. All right. We'll see you next week. Okay. (laughs) 